G'day, everyone. Welcome to Lubrication Experts. Uh, today, I've got a really good interview planned. Um, we're going to do a bit of an international interview today. So I've got uh, guests spanning the globe. So I'm obviously here in Australia, but we've also got South Africa as well as the US. Um, so juggling time zones has been a little bit interesting for this one, but uh, we will press on. But I've got two experts in the field of open gear lubrication who are here to talk to us about one of the more, let's say, uh, unique uh, lubricant applications. And I think there's a lot of interest that we can delve into, particularly with what makes uh, open gears unique versus, you know, standard industrial and automotive gear sets. So today um, with us, we've got Lawrence Davies. Uh, so he works for Whitmore International. And we've also got Brett Jenkins, uh, who works in the Whitmore Shell joint venture. So uh, fantastic to be able to have two uh, really awesome experts to be able to share their knowledge. So, gentlemen, thanks very much for joining me. Thanks for having us, Robert. Thanks, thanks for cool. having us. Uh, just to get started, I think it would be helpful to um, maybe set a bit of a, a tone because there'll be people in this audience who are maybe unfamiliar with with open gearing and or, or if they are familiar, they just think of them as being very, very big gears. Um, so could we maybe set the tone for the discussion to give people – bit of context on like how big open gears really do get, um, you know, even rough numbers around like sort of power and torque and what, what are the typical applications uh, that we might see or even the actual type of gears and, and gear teeth that you would see in a kind of a typical configuration. So I think we when we're talking about open gears and specifically for mining, we're, we're talking about two distinct applications. You've got mills and and earth moving equipment, so drag lines and shovels. When I'm talking about sizes, you you could have a, a open gear pinion as small as six inches in diameter, clear up to a hundred feet, so 33, 35 meters on a on a drag line swing gear, because that's that's really just a big bull gear that's that's swinging a drag line. Drag lines weigh upwards of 20 million pounds. Uh the, the open gear on the um, the propeller mechanism, for instance, picks up that machine and moves it at feet at a time. So you've got extraordinary pressures, big gears, mostly slow moving gears, and you've got to protect those gears with with different types of lubricants. Yeah, a little bit about about open gears on ball mules, and it's not just ball mules; it's any rotating vessel. So. Consider a, a rotating cylinder as a grinding ball mill, but we also get into kilns in the cement industry and into calciners in other industries where material is being dried through a calciner. So these are rotating vessels of very different size uh, that are rotated by an external stroke open gear and driven by a pinion. Uh, these cylindrical... Uh, um, Pieces of equipment generally turn in one direction only, unlike the mining equipment, which would rotate backwards and forwards, left and right. Whereas uh, moles, mole gears and open gears on cylindrical vessels typically turn in one direction. Uh, the sizes vary significantly. So grinding moles are very much designed depending on the material that is to be mold, uh, the type of ore, the type of rock. Uh, so it's very dependent on the mining operation. Um, we, we really talk about the power uh, or the drive capacity, let's put it that way, to drive the mill. 
So we, it's normally expressed in megawatts. So a very sizable bormel that would be a big bormel uh, could be as big as a 32 megawatt bormel. So, so the more the megawatts, the more that indicates the load that is passing through the bormel. And also those bormels can be a lot smaller down to five and six and eight and 10 upward to 32. So a range of sizes in bormels, depending on the mining operation, what is being milled. Uh, if one looks at the cement industry, if anybody's been to a cement plant uh, and seen a kiln, uh, a kiln is probably a hundred meters long or even longer than that. So that has to be turned and rotated by an open external gear. Uh, again, temperatures, load uh, are all things that we need to consider. The girth of a, or the diameter of an open gear on a mill can be 10 meters. Uh, the width of the gear can be 60 to 80 centimeters as well. So it's, it's again, um, many sizes of mill and open gear, depending on the application. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think that sort of helps frame the discussion. Um, maybe the next obvious question would be, you know, how do some of those factors make the lubrication of open gear sets, um, unique relative to, you know, other industrial gearing, like, you know, is it just we're taking industrial gearing and making it much bigger? Um, what what makes these kind of uh, gear sets unique? So it is that, but it's also in a, in a gearbox, you've you've got a contained gear set, and you it's surrounded by gear oil typically, right? So gear when when you start talking about the funnel fundamentals of lubrication, which most most your viewers will know, you're you're looking for um, a hydrodynamic dynamic full fluid film. Well, in open gears, obviously there's no, there's no fluid. So you're, you're working with boundary a lot, um, especially on, on the dirt moving equipment. Cause those, those gears are moving back and forth. Whereas on, on a mill, they're, they're always going one way and really, um, you want a constant speed. There's some newer technology that works in open gears that you're really looking to get that full fluid film in an open gear. The dynamic and I don't, I don't both Lawrence and I have, have had a lot of experience on that. It, it's you're using super high viscosity lubricants that are you're you're in the, the range of starting out at maybe twelve thousand uh, centistokes at, at forty degrees, clear up to over a hundred thousand centistokes at forty degrees. So you're you're really looking at a different different types of Open gears for different kinds of, of applications. Climate can change things. What the ambient heat and obviously the pressures and the speed. Yeah, and maybe just to jump in for a little bit of context as well. I mean, most of the time when we're talking enclosed gear drives in industrial, the viscosities that you're typically talking about are you know 150 to 680 centistokes at, mm -hmm. at at 40 degrees Celsius. So. So anything in that sort of like 10,000 to 100,000 range is, you know, off the charts um, in terms of uh, gear oil viscosities. Yeah, it's it's probably important just to, in your mind, conceptualize, as Brett said, in an enclosed gearbox, it's exactly that. The lubricant is enclosed. In an open gear environment, uh, you cannot enclose the lubricant. So it's all about keeping the lubricant on the gear, but it's not in an enclosed environment. So you've got to find ways to, or the formulators, have to find ways, one, to get the lubricant onto the gear set, make it pumpable, 
They need to keep it on those gears for as long as they can before it gets replenished because ultimately it's a lost system. If it's not a circulating system, the lubricant is not contained. So it's about keeping the film condition at the best optimum level you can. And that is different for an open gear on a, a piece of mobile equipment, because consider a shovel in a pit, you can't have a lubricant dripping off all over the machine. So you, you would, you would typically really look for a grease type of, of open gear lubricant. Whereas on a, a rotating ball mill, uh, you have more options because you can contain your, your cycle of lubrication better. So it's all about how do you keep the lubricant where you want it to do the job that it needs to do. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. I mean, you already touched on there a little bit, and that's probably a good segue into one of the big, um, kind of like, I guess, divergences in open gear lubrication, which is, you know, do you select an open gear lubricant versus an open gear grease? Um, would you guys be able to talk through some of maybe the, the like the decision points about what drives you towards uh, grease lubrication versus, you know, fluid lubrication in, uh, in some of these gear sets? Warren's nailed it on the head. Um, on, oh, he, he nailed, he said the money equipment in the pit versus the mills. Typically on the mobile equipment, you want it to stay there as long as possible and, and really adhere to the gear and stay put, but you still have to replenish it. On a mill, you want it to remain mobile, fluid. You, if, you, if it starts to solidify too much in the root of a, of a, of a gear, then you're going to cause some severe problems. So that's the first question to ask. Is it rotating the same, the same way at a constant speed, or is it a unilateral gear? Um, second question would absolutely be what's the climate, how, how much temperature and, and then you start getting into a couple other details. Yeah. It's important also to understand typically, um, and, and, uh, you know, it's possible to define open gears or open gear lubricants into probably three or four different categories. So we generally talk about a grease or a fluid. It splits down a little further than that into a grease, into a fluid into a residual, into an oil. So there are various ways to define the type of, of lubricant, but typically um, a grease type is really what's used on a horizontal open gear on mobile equipment and can also be used on a rotating ball mill type application. The reverse is not true, however. A fluid type of OGL typically cannot be used or should not be used and is not used successfully on uh, horizontal open gears on mining equipment. So, so greases, I guess, are more uh, uh, functional in terms of the range of applications. Whereas I would say a fluid type or an oil type is more restricted to a rotating vessel type of open gear application. So that would be the first way to decide what is the right type of product to, to select. Um, but it gets, it gets, it goes beyond that because as Brett touched on earlier, you, you have two types or, or you have three types, but, but, but generally in practice, we have two types of lubrication environment. One is boundary lubrication. <clears throat> the other is hydrodynamic lubrication. Hydrodynamic lubrication would be the preferred, um, status to, to lubricate two gears, but that is not possible on horizontal open gears on mining equipment. So there we typically have boundary lubrication conditions where we need solids and we need greases and we need a tacky product to 
uh, provide that lubrication. Whereas in an open gear or on a bormel, uh, you have a little more flexibility in terms of your choice in, in certain respects as to what, 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 what type of lubricant um, you can choose in terms of a fluid or an oil type lubricant, yeah. if that makes sense to you. Uh, we are also driven by OEM requirements. So OEM requirements often dictate the type of lubricant. So if you look at your mining, your, your traditional mining shovels and drag lines, that's already clearly specified by the OEM what type of product he wants so or, or they want. So that, that pretty much defines the range of products you can offer the customer. Um, when you go to a bore mill, the same thing applies. You would have OEM approvals and specifications that would lean towards other types of technology. So it's, it's driven by a bunch of those criteria. Um, often, it's, often it's around what does the customer want and what do we want to give the customer to meet his requirement? Because at the end of the day, we, w we want to sell, but we also want to give the customer the best product we can give him. If we could convert everybody to the best solution, we would. That is not always possible. So we try to give the customer the type of product he wants or needs. And if we can get him to a better type of technology, we do that. Yeah, really interesting. Um, now, maybe if we, if we start specifically and drill down a little bit into the greases, you already mentioned some of the applications where we would use greases over a standard not fluid lubricant, if you want to call it that. Um, I think it might be helpful for people to understand a little bit more about sort of what kind of greases are applied. You already mentioned solid lubricant, and I think anytime you say that, people's mind jumps immediately to Molly. Um, but there's probably a little bit more to it than that. So are you able to give a little bit more information on the types of grease thickeners? What's the typical base oils we might be using? What kind of thickness and what kind of solids are often used in these applications? So, so first thing is, it's technically a grease, right? Like an open gear lubricant that's a grease type is technically a grease, but it's not compatible with greases. So uh, uh, if you put an EP grease on top of an EP OGL grease, they will wash each other. They don't get along with an open gear grease is its own animal. And there's, there's a few different thickeners that are, that you, you see common in the market, just like with EP greases, you'll see a lot of lithium. You'll see some aluminum. Aluminum is pretty popular just for the, the pulpability issues. Um, you're starting to see a, a little bit of calcium sulfonate in, in that space, um, for Obvious reasons, calcium sulfonate's a, a great thickener, um, but they're much thinner than you would typically see in an EEP grease. The, the EEP grease is that most people have. Any cartridge is going to be an NLGI two. The um, you won't typically see an open gear lubricant at more than an lot. So an uh, a double lot, a triple lot, depending on how thick, how much diluent. We'll, we'll talk about diluents, I'm sure, as we, we start talking about the, the OGLs. Um, and you're really looking for the characteristics that they bond to a gear, to the metal. And you can put too much on and it'll wash itself on. It doesn't get along with others because it'll wash off. It's, so application rates and um, the timing of the application, how you apply it, how much you apply it, are critical success of anybody's opening gear lubricant. So... There's, there's not near as much thickener in it as there would be in a normal grease because you are going for those odds and, and double odds. Yep. I think Tangents. you got it all. And again, 
it's it's about pumpability in different climates. So it's about base oil viscosity. Obviously, the soap that the you know the choice of soap gives certain properties, whether it's water resistance, stability under shear. So all of those characteristics are important in terms of of the types of soaps. But generally, as Brett's mentioned, aluminum complex, uh, lithium complex. We have some bentone clay products too that are an older technology thicker, but still very functional. And still we sell a lot of those types of products in the market because they have specific properties. So, so any of those three types of products, typically, if you look at a lot of, uh, shovel approvals, you will find that they would approve more than one type of thickener. So it's just important to note that not all of these are compatible with one another. So they are not readily interchangeable. And as Brett says, an EP grease is not compatible with an open gear grease. They are different animals. They are formulated differently. Um, again, if you consider what the machine is doing in a, in a pit that's dusty and there may be moisture and slow. I mean, I've seen shovels in minus 20 degree conditions in Siberia. I've seen them at 40 degrees C in Africa. So the performance of that lubricant has to meet the requirements of the environment. It has to carry the load. And so the choice of soap and the choice of thickener and other uh, additives is what one would consider uh, depending on, on the, the environment and the piece of equipment. Yeah. Awesome. And, and just in terms of solids, is it the usual suspects? Like, is it, you know, moly and graphite kind of all the way, or it, do we see anything else? Moly and graphite, yeah, so you'll see some calcite too. Calcite in Teflon here and there, but not, not a lot. And the, but one, one thing that I wanted to bring up in Warren's touch on it is the, the compatibility part of it. When we, when we're talking about grease compatibilities, everybody knows what the, the fear is, right? You're going to put the wrong greases together. They're going to form almost an epoxy and, and start very bad things will happen. You you have those concerns to OGL, but above and beyond that, on an application side, almost no OGL is compatible with another because they're trying to bond to that metal and they're both going to fight for position to bond to that metal. So if anybody's got open gear lubricants in, in that's watching, you always have to, you, you, the way you handle changing a product, it's, it can be done very, but there's definitely a, a different type of process to follow compared to a grease. And it's, you, you flood the system and then you thin it out because we get application rates are key. Yeah. Yep. And, and, and this is where I guess contact uh, your local expert comes in pretty handy because uh, I think, you know, a, a lot of people. I've personally seen a couple of bad, really bad situations where, where that Absolutely. changeover has it's, gone it's, it's easy to horribly, do. horribly it's, wrong. Contact uh, your local expert is a very good bit of advice. Yeah. Um, all right. So that's a little bit on greases. And if we move into the the fluids, um, you know, open gear lubricants as such, um, it would be helpful, I think, to understand a little bit about why these are different from standard industrial gear oil. So as an example... When you look up tables of, of open gear lubricants that are available, um, often they sort of get divided into, you know, the, let's say, very high viscosity synthetic style um, open gear lubricants. And then you've also got your sort of asphaltic uh, lubricants. Now, in the industrial world, we're, we're used to dividing things typically by, you know, mineral paraffinic and synthetic PAO style lubricants. 
And so to see something that's asphaltic is is um, is very foreign to people who are used to dealing with lower viscosity industrial lubes. So one of the obvious questions would be, why aren't we using just standard, you know, mineral oil lubricants, but at much higher viscosities? Like, what's the restriction there? I'd say the the biggest restriction is the cost of boosting the viscosity. But I mean, when, once you when you start talking about you, you know, you said it before, your typical gearbox, you never, you typically don't see much over 6'8". You know, well, most of people, most industrial plants won't see anything over 320. And our, when you start talking about compounds or asphaltics, you're automatically in the 10,000 range right there. So um, asphaltics were used because they were generally a thicker viscosity. Um, there's, there's a lot of down... Asphaltics is an older technology. It was used a lot in the in the play, in the market because it was cheap and it was already that type of viscosity. And you, it's it's a it's a messy, dirty, ugly fluid, but it also has a lot of open chains, so it's very easy to anatize. You can do a lot with it, but it's cheap, so you can use a lot of it, and it's still cheap. But it is there's there's some environmental issues with asphaltics. There's it is older technology. Um, but I think the, the biggest thing is that the health and the environmental issues is why the, the industry as a whole is going away from us politics. Can you and please then, help describe a little bit more about those health and environmental issues? Yeah, aromatic groups, aspartame, uh, various other uh, carcinogenic uh, causing substances in, in, in their structure. So So essentially they... They are, well, not potentially toxic, they are toxic. So, you know, for anybody operating in the environment, they are exposed to a toxic product. But yeah, absolutely, aromatics and other, other carcinogenic substances that are, are clearly no longer acceptable in, in 2023. Yeah, and then it stands to reason, obviously, when you're having to dispose of that product at the end, it also requires its own kind of segregation to ensure that it doesn't end up Correct. in, you know, waste streams where it shouldn't. Yeah, yeah you- asphaltics, I mean, that was an early technology, you know, chosen for the reasons I think Brett described, readily available, cost-effective, um, good viscosity options, easy to put additives into, all of those good things. And and they still perform very well up to a point. Uh, we still have customers that buy those products, even though we are moving towards phasing them out where we can. Um, but... Yes, they are toxic. So uh, toxic to the to uh, people in the environment that that um, are, are clearly exposed to those products. They are difficult to dispose of because, as you mentioned, they need specific disposal methods, and that's becoming expensive and inconvenient. And then they have some practical things that make them less attractive. So they do build up in the roots of, of gear sets and that's, that can be problematic. They harden in the gear guards, uh, they drain slowly. So, so practically they are met that they tend to be messy and provide some, uh, uh, maintenance issues. Let's put it that way. So if you add up all of those three negatives, there are technologies that allow us to move away from that now and, and have you know, less, less toxicity, more environmentally acceptable products and practically more functional products. Yeah. And I guess just to, to highlight the issue of buildup in the, in the tooth root, 
um, you know, for people Im- imagining that sort of that gear mesh, if you get enough buildup of that material in the tooth root, it starts to sort of like push against that the intermesh between the the gear teeth, right, and um, starts to add stresses to the system that you you might not want. Hundred um, percent. So, when we're talking about the synthetic style uh, base oils, I think you know, let's say ninety nine percent of the time in industrial, we're talking about polyalpha olefin style. Uh, synthetic base oils and obviously you've got the occasional polyacrylene glycol for worm gear drives and things like that um what kind of synthetic tends to be used in the uh open gear synthetic lubricants group three and group four i don't i've never seen a a poly a, a fag in in an odl um there's there may be a tag for some food grade stuff but it's that's not really my 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 value but it's it's always a group three or group four, um, and again high viscosity. Um, you have to use you use much less of it, and it's it's a lot more environmentally acceptable. When you start talking about your group threes or group fours, then you can you can dispose of it with your waste oil. The way your waste oil and your hydroxyl oils they'll break down, and that that even though they're that really high viscosity, there's going to be so little of it compared to your typical waste of hydroxyl and cure all that it'll dilute it enough to get rid of um but the 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 newer technology on the synthetics is it's it's beautiful technology you've got you've got these big massive gears that are running in mesh and you're keeping them in a, a hydrodynamic or a flu, full fluid film by getting again by getting the the viscosity right now when we're talking about bearings we, we start talking about 68 cinestal but when we're talking about these high viscosity synthetic gear oils for, for, for gears, you've got a 12,000 set of stoke um, oil that's keeping two gears completely separated. And as long as they're in that that right um, speed and, and nothing slows down, and not a startup, obviously, but they're really running in a full fluid film. And it's, it's we're seeing, you can see life extension on the gears, energy savings, um, and what, Lawrence is talking about balancing a mill with with load. You, we've seen mills actually be able to increase their load because of the reduction in friction on the gears. So it's pretty amazing technology. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's amazing. Um, maybe one obvious question that the audience will have, and this is where we can start to talk about diluents and uh, and things, is would be the the pumpability of of such high viscosity lubricants so you know my own experience would be once you get to about thirty thousand centistokes or whatever it's actually hard to get this stuff out of the drum you know it, it's yeah. just it's like treacle right it's like this very very incredibly thick honey and it doesn't readily pump so what is the role of well how do you pump a lot of these lubricants whether it be the asphaltic styles we already talked a little bit about the greases and the very, very high synthetic, uh, very, very high viscosity synthetic uh, gear lubricants. Maybe we can talk a little bit about pumpability as well as like application style as well. Yeah, so so typically, um, you know, diluents are exactly there for the reason you mentioned, because if you have a 100,000 centistoke base oil starting oil for your, your OGL, that's not a pumpable product. So 
So clearly we want the high viscosity, but we've got to also practically be able to get it into a drum and out of a drum and pump it onto the OGL through a loop system or onto the open gear through a loop system. So the, the primary function then of, of, of the, of the diluent is to bring the viscosity down to a usable pumpable, uh, um, a scenario to something like three and a half or 4,000 center stokes, for example, that's pumpable in most ambient conditions. Uh, yes, we have lighter grade products for lower temperatures, but really the diluent is just to keep it in a drum. We can get it out. We can pump it through a loop system without having to use heated belts and blankets and other more, more complex things to make the lubricant pumpable, get it onto the gear set. Once it's on the gear set, obviously everything changes because the, you know, depending on the nature of the diluent, it will evaporate, it'll volatilize, uh, it's done its job. And then you get a viscosity change on the gear set and obviously viscosity and full ball will follow. So the, the only reason really for the diluent is to make it practically pumpable and to get it onto the gear set. Now, having said that, yes. there are different types of diluents. Mm, we use less of a diluent, more of a low molecular weight spindle oil, because there are some, there are some environmental challenges on on diluents, some are more acceptable than others. Like everything, one has to be aware of what you use. Um, in our Enviralu XE type products, they are all non-asphaltic products. They use a diluent. They have hundred thousand centerstoke base oil viscosity, but in in the drum and as we supply them to the customers, depending on the grade, between three and a half and four and a half thousand centerstokes. So very usable, very pumpable, um, and then interesting mechanism. Once the diluent or once the the diluent, let's call it that, has volatilized. You get a, a viscosity climb. So what you what you're getting is um, a a full viscosity build on your gear set. And I mean, we estimate on our on our Envirolubexi products, which are very special types of products and technology, uh, anything from a fifteen thousand to a twenty thousand center stoke full thickness in an operating gear set. So rather than having a drop in viscosity with temperature we get a rise in viscosity because that is how our product is designed. So that gives you a much stronger form that gives you a much better hydrodynamic uh, condition. Um, and we, we have also seen from experience and we've documented, uh, that we are able to, in some cases, not all. So in some cases we have seen reductions in vibration on ball mills and gear sets, which we attribute sometimes to the strength and the viscosity of that form. So it is able to absorb a certain amount of vibration. We have seen reductions in vibrations because of that form strength, that form thickness, and that, that mechanism of diluent. Yeah, that's, uh, that's really interesting. Um, maybe the other, um, broad category of, let's say open gear lubricants or fluids or whatever you want to call them would be the huge variety of running in compounds that are on the market. Um, now I know different companies have different perspectives on this. Um, so could you help sort of describe maybe what's the purpose of them? Um, because when people say running in, like we don't typically have running in compounds for industrial gearboxes, right? When, when people hear running in lubricants, often they're thinking about an engine oil. <laughs> so, um, you know, what is the purpose of some of these running in compounds and, and, and how exactly are they supposed to work? So when you've got an enclosed gear case, you've got it from one manufacturer, right? And those gears are paired. So 
you've got a machine process that's already happened. When you're talking about open gear, open gears, you're replacing gears. You're a lot of times the gear will be made by two different manufacturers. They're definitely not a paired gear set. There's, there's opinion and there's a bull, but they're not a paired gear set. So you have to, when you're talking about breaking, you're really trying to control where. So there's going to be where, but you don't want, you want to dictate how the wear happens. So you're basically taking the, um, the asperities and trying to match the asperities so that the asperities don't cause excessive wear and, and low is shorten the life of, of, a, of a gear set. So you're, you're controlling the wear to a certain extent, knocking off the tips of the asperities. Um, again, this is when you want to consult your local expert. Um, a lot of companies make products with, um, something like the ZDP where it's, uh, not over anatized. So you do have that break in fluid within the fluid. Some others will recommend a break in fluid with an aggressive, um, and a package, but you really have to monitor it and know what you're doing because we keep, we keep talking about wear and we don't want our gears to wear. So you want to control that wear in the right way, have a, um, an additive package that activates with heat. So then it's hard. You, it's not an aggressive, but then there's other people that make break in fluids that is not dependent on heat that is very aggressive and you have to know what you're doing and how long to run it and can you run it loaded, unloaded? There's a lot to get into. Yeah, all right. So maybe just to add to to what is happening there, as Brett mentioned, so you've got two gear surfaces that are not a matching set, let's put it that way. And at, at a microscopic level, the pinion and the bull gear have a, have surface imperfections and asperities on the surfaces. Uh, obviously, those are colliding and clashing before that gear set settles down. That is not a good environment because you're breaking pieces, you're generating wear. So, so obviously what we're trying to do with a running in compound is in a controlled fashion, get through that running phase as fast as we can in a controlled way to remove those asperities because what we're trying to get to is two flat, smooth surfaces because that allows for greater load carrying capacity compared to two surfaces with peaks and troughs, which never really fit together well and the load carrying capacity is limited. So, so that is what, what the running compound is designed to do. It's designed to smoothen those surfaces and there are different chemistries that do that. However, it's, it's something that is, has to be a managed and controlled process. If I can, if I can jump in and, and use a little bit of license here. Um, Whitmore is not a great proponent of running in compound. So we have a lot of competitors that would recommend a running in compound and then change to a running, uh, OGL thereafter, which obviously involves some process changes and stops, et cetera. So our, our technology includes, uh, a quite clever chemical additive packages where we do not need a running in compound we, uh, Whitmore, I should say has additive packages that uh, immediately would allow for that smoothing process to take place. So we talk about, uh, we used to, we used to use the word eutectic technology. It's, we now refine it to micro slide technology, but what it really is, is added to packages that are 
induced or, 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 or basically become active at high temperature, as Brett mentioned, where you get collisions between those high points. High temperature generates a chemical reaction and you get a chemical reaction between the additive and the metal surfaces. And that results in a coating on the metal surfaces and almost a plastic metal flow. And that results in a smoothening of the surfaces and ultimately better load carrying surfaces uh, for the two gears and, you know, which is, is what we're looking for. So, so our technology allows us to go straight to a running in, sorry, let me repeat that. Our uh, technology allows us to go straight to a running lubricant. We don't have to use a running in compound of any kind. We go straight to the regular product and that will provide smoothing of the surfaces within 200 to 300 hours. We, um, we also dock and it's fascinating technology. Uh, it's, it's what they call organometallic reactions that are taking place between the additive packages and the metal surfaces. And we, we regularly document, um, surface improvement on gear sets. So typically we try to look at a gear set before we, we change to our product. We document, we take pictures, we take temperature readings, etc. but we have been able to document surface improvement of imperfections on gear sets of after several hundred hours of using products that has this additive technology. So it's, it's fascinating stuff, but it's the same thing we're talking about running in. It's just, it's all in one product, but mm. it's essentially trying to flatten the asperities on the gear sets. Yeah. So maybe just to make the distinction there. So with most of the running in compounds, which, which are kind of chemically active, I think what you're basically trying to achieve is a controlled uh, chemical version of wear with something Correct. like an EP style additive or, or a ZDDP style, you know, phosphorus additive. Whereas what you're describing there is more of something um, that is a kind of a plastic deformation technology, right? Where there is no actually any removal of material, but rather the, a reorganizing of the metal surface. Correct. Correct. Okay. So we, we are, we approach it or the technology, not we, the technology approaches it from a chemical reaction with the met, the metallic molecules at a micron level, a plastic flow and a rearrangement, let's call it of the, the shapes of those asperities. So you get less conflict between asperities, smoother surfaces, and you get to a hydro, hydrodynamic situation faster. So that's exactly what it's doing. Yeah. Interesting. Um, whenever I start to sort of wrap up these interviews, I always like to take a bit of a look to you know, the future and, and what happens over the next, you know, 10, 20 years, obviously our, our industry doesn't, uh, move crazy fast. Um, but there is always new technology being developed in the background. Um, between the two of you, do you see any emerging technologies on the horizon or maybe there's even a technology, uh, that you think would be, you know, really, uh, a really great, uh, application. Um, is it, is there anything that you see on the horizon for open gears? I think there's going to be a, a lot of environmental drivers. Um, you know, the, our whole industry has been moved by regulations and, and environmental concerns. So well, most open gear lubricants are, there's a total, they're total loss lubricants. Um, and as much as we want to do the right thing for the environment as well, and all of our customers do as well, we have to be conscious price. Um, I, I can see some more environmentally friendly, um, things coming down the road. 
and try to be more sensitive to mother nature. And then, um, also you're, you're seeing some different thickeners come into, into play. And I, I'm excited to see what those are going to develop into for open zero overkins. Yeah. Just to add, I think Brett's right. I think, I think all the development will be around making nicer, nicer products that are more environmentally friendly. Um, so, so, you know, that'll be important. Um, we know that our customers are moving in some respects to high viscosity, or we, we see a trend to high viscosity fluid type products, uh, without a diluent. So that's another direction. We, you know, this thing of a transparent OGL versus a, a water white one that's been around a long time. I don't think that's going to change. I think as long as, as the technology allows you to inspect and it, it's a practical solution, uh, uh, that's probably not going to change significantly. Um, I think, I think lower, uh, consumption lubricants clearly would, would be a consideration because one mining companies and operators of, of, of assets like this want to spend less money on lubrication and they want better performance. So it's going to be a combination of environment, lower consumption, a softer on the planet. And I think the additive, the additive, um, suppliers will continue pushing the boundaries with their additive technologies. But, but, I, you know, I certainly don't see any significant, uh, game changer. I think, I think we're already at a place that meets where where ball mills and open gears are, it, it, you know, our technology will be driven by, you know, how do open gear requirements change? Um, so do they get bigger? Do they get smaller? Do they get faster? And the open gear lubrication will evolve around the requirements of the OEM and around the equipment that we're trying to lubricate. Hmm. Really interesting. Well, um, gentlemen, uh, thank you so much for, um, you know, your expertise, uh, that you bring to the table because. You know, open gear lubricants is certainly one of those ones where the kind of like the service offering is hugely valued. I know, you know, among especially like the mining customers and that because it does require, um, let's say, a, a higher level of expertise to be able to, you know, select and, and, and apply them in the correct manner. So, you know, really appreciate your time. Um, you know, thanks so much for sharing your insight and uh, hopefully we'll talk again soon. Thank you Great. for the opportunity to talk to you. Appreciate it.